Hello and welcome. We're here at Holistic Investments and I'm your host, Konstantin Kogan. And I'm excited to have an amazing guest today, Alex Tapscott, who is an author of Web3, Charting the Internet, Next Economic and Culture of Frontier. Uh, he's also Managing Director, Portfolio Manager at Nine Point Partners. He was a co-founder and still is a co-founder of Blockchain Research Institute. Really excited to have you here, Alex. Hi. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, we're going to talk a lot, a lot about exciting things today about your journey. Like, you know, how did you fight blockchain? How did you end up writing an awesome uh, work? And But before that, traditionally, I want to throw a legal disclaimer so that this content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe uh, any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, any other advice. I know you would appreciate it since <laughs> your firm on uh, nine nine points you know i as i remember they're the one the largest independent asset management firm in canada right and you're also um an advice uh, independent advisor right nine point is a large investment company in canada yes yeah yes so so can you maybe really briefly tell us about your story how did you up uh how did you end up in web3 world and what made you excited about it well, I got into Web3 before Web3 entered the vernacular. Um, the only word that we were using then was called Bitcoin. And that was 2014. And, you know, I think what, like a lot of people, I, when I first learned about Bitcoin, I was skeptical, but pretty curious. Um, I, at the time, I was working in, in investment banking, but specifically, I was working in a capital markets role. So uh, on a trading desk where I was covering, you know, large asset managers, um, you know, trading in a variety of different assets, primarily cash equity, so like stocks. And, um, you know, like like anybody um, in that industry, always curious like, about new assets, uh, new ways to make money, um, you know, new things that uh, people were talking about. And so I remember a conversation quite vividly, actually, I was on the trading desk and my head trader told me, have you heard of this thing called Bitcoin? And I hadn't. Um, and by then, this was, you know, Bitcoin had been around for a while. Like, I was a slightly late to the game. You know, this was 2000, maybe 2013 when I first heard about it. But it was really 2014 that I started to, you know, pay a lot of, of attention. And at first, I was convinced that this was a new asset that could, you know, potentially be uh, a moneymaker, uh, an investment. I was seeing how it was being used and the, this passionate community around it. But the more I, I dug in, the more... Um, I began to realize that it was more than just some new asset um, or even asset class, that this was a new technology platform for value and that it was going to have a huge, uh, potentially a huge impact on uh, the industry that I was working in at the time. You know, um, when, when, I, when I worked in the business, and I think it's probably still true today, we used, um, you know, paper certificates to uh, record trades that used to get uh, pushed down into this thing called the cage where all these orders were processed by human beings. And, you know, the front end of finance was always very automated. You know, you press a button, you buy a stock or whatever. But the back end, I thought, was always quite antiquated. So the idea to me of an, a ledger that everyone can see and and trust, but no one can alter, that can serve as a single source of truth and, and eliminate all of that <laughs> complexity seemed like really compelling to me. Um, but the more, so I, so I started to look into Bitcoin. And later blockchain and that was uh mostly in collaboration actually with my dad don tapscott who's a, a business author who's written about the impact of many technologies over the years on on business you know on finance government society and so forth and together we started to do some research on this i was still working at the time full-time but i was taking you know a little bit of time on weekends and evenings to pursue this passion and 
um, we began to sort of come to this conclusion that not only was this a new a new asset, um, and not only was it a new medium for for value, but it was maybe a new platform for the web. That for 30, 40 years, we've had an internet of information. It's changed how we move and share information, how we access it. It's turned people into publishers. It's democratized information and, and, and up upended lots of industries like media, publishing. And I think that's all really interesting. But we've never had a way to move and store value peer to peer. And so blockchains uh, to us looked like a new sort of layer or a new era of the web, an internet of value. And, you know, <laughs> when it comes to assets, um, the, the opportunity is much, much greater than it was for information because assets and money are the lifeblood uh, of our economy and, and finance is the cardiovascular system. So to me, the opportunity, the, the, the thing that it was poised to disrupt just seemed much, much greater. So by then I was fully like down the rabbit hole, very hooked, uh, convinced that this was going to be a big deal. And I was given an offer I couldn't refuse. And just that my dad and I together um, wrote a proposal for uh, a new book that would try and explain all of this stuff to a mainstream audience. And to my surprise, but not to his, we received a terrific offer from Penguin Random House, <laughs> who, who told us, um, we love this book idea and, and we love this father-son duo a routine that you've got. So why don't give it a shot? So that was 2016, and, uh, or 2015. The book came out in 2016, and you know they say luck is the combination of of preparation and good timing. Well, we we felt like we'd prepared, we'd put a lot of effort and energy into this new book, and uh, we also benefited from great timing. 2016 was, I think, a period when the first real wave of people was trying mm -hmm. to um, understand this uh, technology, and there was no book out there for them to read that they could just pick up and understand it. And so we were the first in the market and I think we wrote a pretty good book. And as a result, Blockchain Revolution has sold over half a million copies and has been translated into 19 languages. And it's really propelled me into a, a full-time career in this industry where I've done lots of different things. You know, I was an early advisor to a couple of um, blockchain projects, including one of the uh, top layer one projects in the world. Um, I was also, um, a portfolio, excuse me, I was also a venture capital investor, raised $20 million and invested it into early stage projects, pre 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 sort of token stage uh, opportunities. We raised 20 million and returned about 50 million to investors over a two and a half year time frame. And I've also done a lot of research and writing in the space. You know, I've co-founded the Blockchain Research Institute, which counts, um, you know, as members uh, past and present. Companies like uh, you know Coca-Cola and Exxon and Accenture and Microsoft and CIBC and Manual Life Securities, so you know blue chip sort of Fortune 100 companies, who all are trying to understand what the impact of blockchain and Web3 is going to be on their world. And then uh, yes, more recently I've I've uh, taken on a role as uh, the head of the digital asset group at Nine Point Partners, where I'm in a way kind of melding my my interest in traditional finance with my interest in the in the frontier of finance, and that's been really rewarding experience too. Um, so <laughs> that's sort of me in a nutshell. And then of course, the, the big thing is that two years ago, I started working on a new book called Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. Um, I felt the time was right for a new book. You know, they say the future is bright, but it's not always clear. And in my mind, there was a lot of mud on the windshield. You know, I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of common misconceptions and misinformation in, uh, in this world that really um, clutters people's perspective. And the time I felt was right for a reset 
for some uh, book to help reset the conversation and, and explain, you know, in, in, in with, with what I hope are ideas and themes, you know, that, that, that can stand the test of time. I'm not, you know, who's up, who's down, token prices, whatever. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in uh, giving people a field guide for the internet's next economic and cultural frontier. And so I hope I've done that with the new book. I, I'm sure you did because I actually bought it. Like it's here, so like, and we're going to talk about it in uh, in depth. Uh, but before we jump into your book, like, and I want to just pick your brain a little bit about like what you've just mentioned, right? You know, so yeah. a tremendous career, successful career. I mean, I, but by the way, Blockchain Revolution it was one of my first books that I've read in blockchain, right? Because as you mentioned, there there's, there are not many options back then, right? And um obviously you know kudos to you and your dad like and i think it was an amazing work and it was important one i i, I should say that now like i i love the way you frame the narrative right you know that you, know, you always talk about the big ideas what can be at the end because it's so easy to be dissuaded like you know by the you know the pump and dump games you know the other like you know negative events which Unfortunately, it's very our industry is very cyclical, right? And it happens that you have a lot of negative news. Now, you also mentioned that you raised twenty million dollar fund, and now you're working uh, with one of the top Canadian, you know, institutional investors, so to speak, right? And you have, if I'm not mistaken, seven billion under management, right? And manage alternative assets, not only crypto but other alternative assets, right? And can you talk a little bit about how your investment thesis changed over time? Like let's say things to, since 2016 to 2000, let's say 13. Like really briefly, like how do you view the market right now? What happened back then, and how we matured now? Certainly. So, well, when we first started out writing the book, uh, Blockchain Revolution, um, the market was pretty small. <laughs> um, you know, Bitcoin was the the, the, the biggest by far, um, and the whole market capitalization of tokens was maybe twelve billion dollars. So if the if the entire market had been a publicly traded company, mm -hmm. it would have been you know barely cracked the S and P five hundred, right? Like uh, I think that uh, Under Armour and the Gap or something, they're at the bottom of the S and P five hundred, and they're about a ten billion market cap. So you know today the market value for that asset class alone is over one point two five trillion dollars, and encompasses a lot more than. Um, Bitcoin, <laughs> that's for sure. Though Bitcoin continues to play a very important role in the industry, um, you know, I've I haven't been working as an as an investor for the entire period since two thousand and sixteen. So I can't say that it's evolved year to year. But I will say that you know, in those very early days, like in two thousand and seventeen, when we were um, when we were deploying capital, um, it was mostly about layer ones. Even back then. Um, which is so interesting because that everyone thinks of like the alternative layer one thesis as being part of the story for 2021. You know, we saw Ethereum in a way almost a victim of its own success. Gas fees were increasing. Uh, the network was seeing a lot of congestion. And so we needed some other platforms to uh, share the load pretty much and to uh, maybe do things differently and maybe better. Right. That was the whole thesis. But that was also the thesis back then, too. Now, the irony, of course, is that during that period of time, a lot of those layer one platforms, um, like some of the some of the ones that launched, and they didn't call themselves that, but they called themselves sort of general purpose blockchains. 
began as ERC20 tokens <laughs> before moving to their own uh, networks, which is really funny, right? It's like, we're going to be this thing that kills Ethereum, but we're actually going to launch on Ethereum first and then migrate over to our own chain. So I think that's a reflection of how early uh, we were. But even back then, you know, there were some interesting signs um, of a lot of the applications that have become much more popular now. You know, in the book, Blockchain Revolution, the first book, we talked about how blockchain was going to transform financial services, how, what it was going to mean for art and for culture. We talked about a thing called crypto collectibles, which mm -hmm. eventually became NFTs. We talked about reimagining financial services. Um, we have this interesting, you know, I think mental model that includes all the functions of finance, you know, moving value, storing value, accessing credit, how we trade, how we connect um, investors with startups, how we do accounting, how we organize financial information. Like the idea was, could we, instead of just, you know, changing the interface for finance, fintech, that's what I think of fintech is sort of digital wallpaper. Could we reimagine finance from the ground up? And then of course, a couple of years later, that's what happened with, with DeFi. Um, and there's, you know, DeFi has got growing pains, but um, that's fundamentally what it does. It tries to reimagine finance from the ground up. So all of these things were kind of percolating um, back then. You know, nowadays the market is, is much more mature and I'm not a full-time investor in, uh, in the world of tokens anymore. Um, I have investments with friends who are <laughs> venture capitalists. And so, um, you know, I have my my hobby courses, but in general, I let them uh, take care of that on my behalf. Yeah, and that's well understood. And that, I think now we can talk about like with, with uh, a natural transition and your evolution of your vision, right? So in the new book, basically Web3, uh, you're talking about like you, you actually break it down into three parts, right? Disruption, transformation, leadership. So I want to ask you something more unconventional before we jump into it. Like, you know, why did you decide, why did you pick this particular structure? Um, we'll say that one more time. So the structure... So the stru that you you break it you break down the book into three parts right yeah. disruption transformation yeah. leadership right so yeah. I'm curious yeah. what was the idea behind it to to break it down like this into this structure um, well the the easy answer is every book needs a structure so I needed to have some structure <laughs> correct so that's number one number two is um, you know the like the book is broken down, as you say, into these three sections. Section number one is meant to introduce the big idea and then to give people, to level set everybody's information, right? So there's lots of, I think, like my hope with a book like this is that it will be read by Web3's uh, pioneers, that people who are doing this stuff will find this book useful. But it's also meant for everybody else. It's meant for, you know, enterprise leaders, managers, um, government officials, journalists, students, anybody really who cares about the future and maybe wants to play a role in shaping it or wants to understand how they can get involved, right? So that's that's a big audience and, and that's intentional. I'm trying to reach a big audience. So with that in mind, we've got to make sure that everyone's working on the same set of facts. And so that's sort of chapter two. And then it goes into what you say are the transformations. So the book is organized in what I would view are sort of like concentric circles, starting with the most elemental and then building out from there. The most elemental thing, the most basic transformation is to assets, right? Mm -hmm. So blockchains at their core are a digital medium for value. They enable us to program scarcity into the web and to, and to allow people and businesses and other entities to move and store and organize assets peer to peer. And that's like the key core sort of like kernel 
Now, blockchains are one of many uh, technologies which are converging around Web3, and that also includes technologies like artificial intelligence and extended reality. But at its core, none of Web3 is possible without this concept of a token or a digital asset, right? So we have to start there. Um, and then from there, I look at what the impact is going to be on people. So what does it mean to be an internet user? How does it impact um, creators? What does it mean to be a citizen, you know, in a way, or to be connected into the global digital economy as a human being? So we look at the, the human side of it. Then I look at the impact on um, organizations. And so, you know, what is the way in which this technology will, I guess, further decentralize companies or make them more digitally native? Um, how can we use this toolkit to uh, create new kinds of uh, organizations that weren't possible before. And that conversation is a lot about distributed autonomous organizations and other forms of like internet native problem solving. And so the, the thesis there is simply that, you know, the Silicon Valley is known for a long time that if you want to attract the best people, you've got to cut them in on the equity. And so ownership, we know, is a huge incentive for people to do something with their time. And the idea of a DAO and, and of Web3 is simply that you can turn not just employees, but all of the users and contributors to your service or application, you can turn them into owners. And owners care more. Now, this is something that's only really possible with a DAO. If you wanted to launch a, a new software company and start with a corporation as your framework, and you wanted to offer ownership uh, using some mechanism to people who were using your service in 50 different countries, how would you do it? How, like literally, how would you do it? You'd have to, you'd have to have lawyers in every country. You'd have to have options agreements or RSU agreements or something. You would have to translate contracts into 20 languages in order to make them enforceable. You'd have to do all of this stuff. It just would never be feasible to onboard a user, right? Because like the acquisition cost for a user is like 50 bucks or something. Why would you spend all this money? Um, now with tokens and with DAOs, you can do it much more simply. You can give people a way to earn passively a token reward for being a user of a platform. Now, why would you do that? I think in Web3, a lot of people look at this as like, oh, this is a way to make a quick buck and then move on to the next thing. You know, the idea um, in practice should be if you're contributing value to something and you're a long-term user, that you should be uh, rewarded with ownership, right? It's like if you're going to create value for something, you might as well own it. And that's true for every single kind of software, most software applications, most kinds of, of organizations. You know, a decentralized exchange is only as useful as its liquidity. If you can't trade the assets, then it's not very useful. A social uh, application is only as useful as the number of people who are using it. You need that social graph, that critical mass of people in order to make it any fun, right? Um, an online game, like a massive multiplayer game is only fun if other people are in that environment as well. So there's all these reasons why users actually add value to these platforms. Um, and we should be able to compensate them for that. So I think that that's a, just a new like paradigm, basically, that um, has been applied successfully to some kinds of projects, like in the DeFi space, but can be more widely applied to other organizations. In the book, I talk about um, the theory of the firm. Now, this is, I don't want to get too, too, too like academic here, but basically there's this uh, important theory of why companies exist. And it was pioneered by a, a famous economist named Ronald Coase. And he asked the question, he said, why do we even have companies to begin with? Like, well, why isn't everyone just a, a contractor, you know, negotiating and bidding in an open market? 
And he said, the reason is transaction costs. So long as it's cheaper to do things inside the boundaries of a firm than in an open market, companies will continue to grow. So he, he was someone who was writing in the 1920s and he was looking at the, the average company, not the average company, like the, the archetypal company, Ford, the Ford Motor Company. And he's saying, look, they don't just make cars. They've got a timber mill, they have a rubber plantation, they have steelworks, they've got coal, they've got all this stuff. And they're not interested in you know, bidding in an open market. They're just putting everything inside of the firm. Now, technology tools for the last 100 years have lowered transaction costs mm-hmm. so that it's easier to outsource and offshore and to find partners and collaborators to build a business. So today, like Apple, which is the closest thing we have to the Ford Motor Company of today, has 150 subcontractors in China alone. <laughs> you know, the, the Apple doesn't have a, a steelworks for its phones. It knows that it can outsource these things, right? So um, that's where technology has gotten us today. And my opinion is that this new toolkit helps to extend a, a process that's been going on now for many years, which is to, to disaggregate the firm further, to make it more global and more digitally native. And that's something that um, is only possible with tokens. Okay, so that's organizations. I'll speed up. And then we look at industries, so different kinds of industry transformations, financial services, gaming, physical infrastructure, and so forth. Then I try to, I try to take a look at the, at the metaverse. Um, and try and reconcile these two different points of view, which is that most of the conversation around the metaverse today is about virtual reality being pioneered by huge companies like Facebook and Apple. And then there's another side, which is talking about, you know, tokens and digital ownership. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what is the actual metaverse here? <laughs> because if the metaverse is just virtual environments that are controlled and owned by big companies, that's not a new shared reality that's just virtual disneyland right that's like a a diversion it's entertainment it's not something new and profound and disneyland is okay but people shouldn't confuse you know being in a virtual facebook environment with being in on some new plane of human existence (laughs) so i think in order to fulfill that we need to have um all the same kinds of rights property rights rights to privacy and so forth which are only possible with web3 and then I look at uh, civilization. So what does this mean for, for global governments? How is it going to impact social issues and so forth? And then the final section is on challenges. What, what could go wrong and why this might not work? And then, of course, a conclusion, uh, giving some recommendations, honestly, to readers in terms of what they can do next. So I hope I haven't, I hope I've given away enough of the book that people want to buy it, but not too much that they're like, well, I already know the, the gist, so I don't, I don't need to pick oh. it up. There's a lot, it's 300 pages long, so there's a lot more detail in there. And there, I encourage you all to check it out. <laughs> there's definitely enough like historical context and know-how, like and beautifully placed, like all, all the this content together to read it. And I, that's what I highly recommend. But I want to go to um, a few concepts that you uh, basically attack in the beginning, right? So you talk about yeah. the concept of third era, right? Uh, there, there are many attempts, you know, like I'm. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Matthew Lamerell, he, he introduced a book like Fifth Era, right? So his concept is like to divide it into five, uh, five like major evolutionary like you know chapters, uh, you know starting, uh, uh, starting from agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution, and then now we have like more like technological revolution, right? In your case, you approach it a little bit differently, right? In the in the part the first uh, part disruptions, right? You know so. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about like what do you call the third era, right? And what does it mean conceptually for us or like sure. Web3? Sure. Well, for starters, I will say that, you know, I think there's a there's a 
right now people think of web3 and crypto as being sort of interrelated or being the same thing and they and they're not the same thing they're interrelated but they're not the same thing um right now there are several technologies all emerging at once uh, or at least several technologies that are really hitting their stride most of them are overnight success stories many decades in the making um but we're right now seeing this experience where they're all hitting an inflection point blockchains which we've discussed ai which is you know reimagining what we thought computers could do and and i think will completely reshape our world um extended reality for decades we've had a two dimensional internet experience and now we're on the precipice of spatial web you know a web that is three dimensional and integrated into our world and then uh, connected devices you know in the not too distant future um there will be billions and trillions of connected devices but they will not only be connected to the web they'll be autonomous they'll be they'll have intelligence because of ai and they'll have the ability to transact because of blockchains so so my point is that these are not separate but related and i think in the same way that the term internet went from describing a very narrow set of sort of internetworking technologies to describing everything you know a whole range of technologies uh, new business models uh, new social behaviors and other phenomena Uh I think the term web 3 is going to help to define the next era of the web and that all of these technologies are going to play some role in that right so that's sort of the starting point um but more specifically you know web 3 is uh the ownership web so I'll I'll start just going back so web 1 was basically a medium for the presentation of static information um on on websites pretty much right so you know Constantine you look like someone who is probably old enough to use the web in the 90s <laughs> I can't totally tell I was um yes and I yeah. and yeah you may recall it was not a very fun or well it was it was fun but it was not a very um intuitive experience and certainly kind of clunky right um and so you know you go online you get a website and primarily it was a way to just sort of like access content um and that was fine that was really interesting in a way it sort of democratized access to a common set of information a common network um at least for people who had access to an internet connection which is a big if obviously um web 2 changed the web from a from a consumption medium to a um to a collaborative medium medium so basically the web became a way not only to access your own access information but to upload your own content uh, to effectively become like a publisher of information and so everyone had a, a platform to share their their thoughts and their photos and their ideas and and around that built communities and tribes online um and that was a really powerful thing too you know if uh, if web 1 democratized access to information web 2 democratized access to publishing um you know gave everyone a way to to have a voice at least again for those who had access to the internet um but web 2 came with some steep costs it uh, concentrated power in the hands of a handful of companies uh, that became monopolies in different parts of the economy um it basically kept people hooked on platforms with recommendation engines which fed them disinformation um and tried to sow division as a way to keep them engaged yeah, and clicking which was problematic to say the least um it stifled innovation the fact that we have natural monopolies now in all these different uh, areas means trying to compete is quite difficult and competition is the lifeblood of progress so that was a problem as well uh those platforms also became chokeholds for uh governments that use them as a way to you know surveil citizens which is obviously problematic too so taken as a whole you know web 2 had lots of advantages um and benefits to be sure but it had some costs some pretty steep ones at that
when, when and, I, when, Alex, if I may, like when you're saying it, ha like you, you're talking about it like as if it's in the past. Like in my, in my humble opinion, we are living in this right now. Like you yeah. know, and and it's and it's like it's insane how it's impacting us like every day. So I, if you if you can maybe help us to understand a little, how do you see the transition that we finally get to the you know Web <laughs> three? Yeah. Well, so you you should you're right, and I should say. Um, <laughs> we had and have currently the I, I, I would be happy if that would be the case but that's not like right you know it's still happening like a lot of mass disinformation like you know where which creates a lot of challenging situations i'm not going to go like into what happening right now with the wars like and the opinions and like you know people who are becoming angry because they actually don't get the full picture and it's still happening as we speak yeah yeah yeah, I have comments. I have thoughts about that too, but we'll we'll park that for another conversation. Uh, but yeah, you're basically right that like this is the status quo for for all intents and purposes. Like we're living it right now, and um, we're seeing the effects of that. Now, I don't think that Web three is like a solution to every problem. Um, you know, Web three is not going to make um, a war or, or conflict disappear. Maybe it'll make the reporting on it a little bit better. But um, you know, in general, it's it's there's there are some things that are well beyond the reach of technology. Uh, but I do think that Web3 uh, can help to input power in the hands of individuals at the expense of platforms. And that the way to do that is by own is through ownership, because being an owner gives you power, gives you control and gives you influence. And that's just not the way that these platforms operate today. So my view is that, you know, the transition, whatever the transition is, is not going to be abrupt. It's going to be gradual. In, in the sense that, you know, Web2 companies, I believe, will continue to exist. There's, they're not going away. And it's unlikely that, that uh, they become user-owned networks or platforms. Um, more likely that they'll, um, if anything, double down on their existing model and try and capture as much value as they can. And that's something that we've seen play out time and again with other transitions to new technologies. You know, there's lots of Web1 companies and even pre-internet companies that are still around and still make a lot of money. You know, there's still HP and Dell and, um, you know, all America online and Yahoo, like these companies are still around. Like there's, they're not, they haven't, they're, they're, they're maybe diminished versions of themselves. Um, but the, the reason is that they sort of, they missed the boat when it came to some big transformations, you know, and they missed the, the transition from PCs to, to mobile, or they missed the transition from the internet of, you know, uh, or of, the, of web one to web two from like, you know, a, a broadcast medium to a social medium and so on and so forth. And that's fine. And I think that, you know, they'll maybe continue to exist indefinitely. And, and I think the same will probably be true for web two uh, companies. But the question that I always ask is, you know, in the last 20 years, 10 billion, $10 trillion, excuse me, of market cap of value has been created in seven companies. Where is the next $10 trillion going to get created? Is it just going to be that those companies become bigger and more powerful? Uh, and with inflation, it's probably more like $20, $20 trillion, right? Um, but where is that $10 trillion going to get created? Um, you know, is it going to be that these, these big companies get more powerful or is it going to be that the value uh, accrues somewhere else because there are organizations or networks that are doing things differently and better? So the question is not like, you know, what, when will Facebook become a Web3 company any more than it is like, when is 
Dell computer is going to become an internet company. Like there are different categories. And so like, I don't see it happening. It's not going to happen. So the question is like, will people use web three ultimately, you know, we're not, this isn't like some top down directive. That's like now everyone move over to a user own network. It's like, let's see if user own networks find broad mass market appeal. We've seen that in limited degrees with DeFi um, and with NFTs and other sort of early social apps and other sort of examples of this, but can it scale? And that's a question that, that I think is an, is an open one. Um, and I'm happy to discuss what the challenges are to making that a reality, um, if you'd like. Yeah, 100%. I think we, we should because if we're going to be completely objective, so we're both participants of the market, so we cannot be 100% objective. We are evangelizing for, for the market and we're like looking in the future for five, 10 years horizon, right? But if we talk about like what's happening right now, we had multiple events like, you know, so to speak, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like the FTXs of the world and, you know, and also the, you know, the Luna Terra of the world and, and, that kills trust, right? You know, as we know, in any industry, trust takes a lot of time to gain back, right? To win back from the users. And and even, as you mentioned, NFTs, which is, in my opinion, still an amazing, like, invention, so to speak, an amazing tool uh, of ownership. It can be used not only in art and, main, like, multiple other industries, but now the trust is gone because the monetary value went away, right? It's 90, whatever, 98% down. So people looking at the prices, they're, they're depressed. They're not looking at like five years horizon, right? So I think would be great. Maybe if we can talk a little bit about what, what do you think is going to be the practical uh, milestones, like, you know, in the near future, which will help people to gain this trust and maybe uh, take advantage of the technology in something that is not just like, institutional level right but more like down to earth like you know the retail level you mentioned hiroshima and nagasaki um which is an interesting analogy i have a slightly different one and it was um it's not mine it was given to me by someone else so i had a conversation for the book with albert wenger who's um a very well known venture capital investor uh founder of union square ventures and they've been one of the earliest investors in crypto companies years before anybody even knew about it, right? 2012, um, 2013. And he said, once in a while, or he said, you know, technology's come along. And um, every so often, there's like a disaster of some kind, you know, uh, in the rail, in the age of rail, like a lot of railroads derailed, killed a lot of people. And he says, a often, you know, that doesn't really impact the growth of that technology, because the technology has you know, too much of a head of steam, <laughs> no pun intended, um, that it sort of just moves on beyond that. But he said, sometimes there's a disaster that does change the trajectory of a technology and also changes how perceptions uh, or, or changes perceptions about that technology. And he said, look at nuclear power. So similar to what you were saying, but he said, you know, um, peace, not, not, not in, as a weapon, but as a source of power, nuclear power could wean us off of fossil fuels and probably um, help everyone to reach our, our clean energy objectives and maybe save the planet in the process. He says, but um, in the 1970s, we had this Three Mile Island disaster, which kind of caused people to pause. And then we had Chernobyl. And Chernobyl completely altered the trajectory of nuclear power 
um, projects, right? Um, new projects were put on hold, a lot of them got canceled, and the technology just simply never reached what I think a lot of people think it's, it's, is its potential, which is that it's an abundant, clean source of energy generation if run correctly, and assuming that there are no meltdowns. So I was having this conversation with Wenger in the fall of 2022, which we may re recall was when FTX collapsed. You know, we'd already had our Three Mile Island with um, with Voyager and Three Arrows and these other things. I think everyone was a little on the ropes, and then bang, this thing happens, and it's like, holy shit! <laughs> you know, is is FTX um, the Chernobyl for this technology? Um, doesn't mean that it, it it kills it, but it changes its trajectory. So maybe it was going to go like this. And then it just goes like this and it flatlines and it becomes a, a thing that, you know, tens of millions of people use and, and um, find useful and, you know, fun and engaging, but it never really reaches its potential. And I had to really like reflect on that during the process of writing the book. Um, and, and the conclusion that I reached was that, you know, it's not it's Chernobyl just simply because it's too early. And, and ultimately, like it didn't. Um, like the radiation, <laughs> uh, the, the half-life on the radiation is a lot shorter, right? Like it's not going to, this isn't going to be 30 years where we can't inhabit this area. It's going to be, you know, a year where we need to get through um, some difficult, um, uh, learn some hard lessons and and move on from a troubled chapter in, in, the, in the history of, of tokens. Now, I will also add that there's more to the story, of course, than, um, than just crypto and exchanges. Um, but the, just as there was more to nuclear power than one plant in Ukraine, but the reality is that that one thing has kind of overwhelmed the story. So that's, that's my sort of preamble to answer your question directly. I mean, there are several challenges that need to be overcome. You know, the technology needs to continue to scale to meet the demands. Um, we need to build decentralized, um, backend for web three. Right now, Web3 applications on the front end are decentralized, but on the back end, um, they're often running on you know, AWS or using data that's being provided by oracles, which are centralized. And all of those things make for um, an industry that is still kind of reliant on the old world. And then we need applications that people will want to use and that we'll find useful. Um, DeFi was really interesting because there's a lot of, there are you know, tens of millions of people or whatever that love trading and speculating and investing and you know love the arca arcane minutia of finance which frankly DeFi is extremely arcane and i worked in traditional finance and DeFi like gives it a run for its money in terms of how um you know convoluted and engineered it is uh, but it's also fundamentally very fascinating and very important and i think that we need to apply that same passion to building you know applications for people to trade and, and to invest and and, and lend and borrow money and so on and so forth and apply that to more broadly popular kinds of applications. So I do think that that's something that the industry needs to do a better job of. Um, and then I also think that one of the things that we can do is engage more with business, with enterprises. I mean, certainly that's something that, that I've been doing for many years. Like we founded the Blockchain Research Institute 2016, no, 17, 2017. I mean, that's a long time ago. And our founding membership included many of the largest companies, you know, operating in the in the United States and Canada and continues to do great work for for lots of those organizations today. Um, so I've got some hard won experience in in talking to business leaders. And I think that there is a belief um, in some corners of the industry that uh, 
it's almost like selling out <laughs> to like go go to big companies um, and see if they want to you know partner or collaborate or do something. Uh, but the reality is like you know you have to be a pragmatist. I think that there are sort of three kinds of people in this industry. There's missionaries, mercenaries, and pragmatists. And you need missionaries to push the frontier because they're the ones who are willing to take all the risk and they, because they believe in the higher power. Right. Um, and then there are mercenaries and take it or leave it. Like every frontier is going to have, you know, uh, its fair share. And then you've got pragmatists and the pragmatists are the people that say, look, if we want to use our own web where people are empowered and have more privacy and more control and where anyone anywhere can access these tools and use them as a way to move and store value and earn, earn, earn money in a globally distributed and level playing field. And if that's the objective here, then let's figure out how to do it. Let's, let's scale this thing so that we can reach the next billion people. And that's the kind of, I don't know, if I'm in any camp, uh, I, I'm in that camp. So it's it's really interesting that you mentioned the kind of the reason why I did by the way I didn't mention Chernobyl because for me it was very personal I'm from Ukraine originally so it was two years after after I was born right so like all those stories emerged and I I was you know very involved like you know when my family uh, like moved out for you know a certain period of time like you know so that yep. that that was uh, the case now in in if we compare it to what happened to the recent events as you mentioned even Voyager like you know the three hours then Luna Terra, then FTX, and many other companies who went under. Now, obviously, it's not a complete disaster, right? People people lost money. It's uncomfortable. However, we know that that, that cycle already happened and probably will happen again, unfortunately. The question a lot of I people are asking... Well, maybe in a different way, right? So so we the question what we have to ask is, so how, do we, how do we learn from it? What conclusion do we have to drive to make sure that... Like one of the things that I've discovered recently with another uh, person that we had an interview, like Lee Brecher, who's a, uh, basically a co-founder of uh, uh, of the uh, Texas Blockchain Council, right? They they now uh, passed a bill of proof of reserves, right? Which would not completely prevent the disaster of FTX, but at least we would see what's like what are the gap between the reserves that the company holds, like you know, and actual like you know assets that they either lend or you know some of the other like you know accountability like and tools. Now, what my question to you: Where are the pragmatic hats that you mentioned, right? So, what are the top three? exciting things that you see and applications user-centric applications that you think they will drive the new wave of adoption um yeah so well just to roll it back because i want to respond to what you said so like what are the, the things we can do to differently to um, to try and learn from it um i think you're probably right that things like this will happen again for the simple reason that you know human beings are are fallible and you know there are, they say exponential times lead to exponential crimes. I mean, technology tools empower criminals. Uh, technology tools are not, you know, neutral. Um, you know, you can use, um, you know, a computer to, to hack into a, a bank account or, or something like that. Um, you can use, you know, a train, you can stop a train and stick up 150 people. So, so there's that part of it too. And I also think some, one of the things that I kind of wrestle with a little bit is that, um, you know, the web the first era of the web democratized access to information, but it also democratized access to disinformation. And, you know, I, I think that as a society with no, no, um, with no way for everyone to validate the truthfulness of things, 
we end up in this position where we're constantly trying to sift out what's real from what's not right. Mm -hmm. What's either being, what's either spin or what is just outright falsehoods. And I think that today, you know, in the United States and other countries, many people are falling victim to both of those things, um, where they're being manipulated or they're being told just things that are factually incorrect. And so I, I sometimes think about that, like in the context of Web3, it's like Web3 democratizes access to, to ownership, but it also democratizes access to um, sort of financial scams in a way, you know? Um, and it's like, is, is that the equivalent of disinformation? You know, if anybody can publish information on the internet, then you're going to end up with a lot of bullshit. And if anybody can spin up an asset and sell it to somebody, then you're going to end up with a lot of scams. You're going to end up with a lot of great new organizations and businesses and innovation and entrepreneurship, but you're going to also going to have this externality. <laughs> so how do you control for this externality? Well, in information, we haven't figured it out. Like there is no solution to the disinformation problem that exists in our world. Um, and the question is like, is there going to be a solution to that? Uh, I think probably the closest thing we can get to is regulation. I mean, it's still illegal. It's not illegal to say something untrue, I don't think. And I'm sure under some circumstances it is, but in general, people have like protected speech, right? If you say like the sky is green when it's blue, you're not going to get arrested. Um, but if you, at least not in Canada and the US so far, <laughs> but um, but if you, you know, if you spin up some asset and say it's one thing and it isn't, then you're obviously going to be committing fraud. And so you need to be held accountable. So anybody who says this technology can't scale without rules, without regulation, I think is, is wrong. Um, so in terms of innovations, there's a couple of things that I'm really interested in. I think that um, account abstraction is a very important innovation. I think that we need ways for people to uh, access, to on-ramp into this industry and not feel as, as uh, terrified of losing their uh, coins because they've because uh, they've you know misplaced a private key or been victim of some ha hacking attack or something. Um, we need like a better form of sort of social consensus and a better interface for people to access it. Uh, I by the way I think that the market for you know self custody and token ownership could be in the billions of people, but right now based on how it's currently like how it works, it's not. It's like the the, the number of people that were willing to go to Radio Shack and buy a modem. And clog up their home phone line in order to operate like a pc and access the early web that was a small segment of the population That's but cool. once people had access to broadband and wi-fi and that was integrated into the hardware and the browser was a lot nicer to use than mosaic and all of a sudden oh well this is something everybody wants to use so that that on-ramp that interface is extremely important so that's number one number two i think that DeFi remains the thing that like one of the things i'm most excited about um and i think that our problem is that in DeFi, I say our, I mean, I'm not in the DeFi world, though I do host a podcast called DeFi Decoded, but basically like you can't just replace counterparty risk with contract risk. You know, you can't just, it's not an improvement if there's still risk, it just exists in another way. So if you want to make the system more efficient, you need to address the issue. And the issue is that people are, are spinning up projects without um, doing due diligence on their own code. So I think that's like something that's very important. And then in terms of application specific stuff, the two things I'm most interested in are gaming and de decentralized physical infrastructure. So on the gaming front, the argument is really simple. People already spend billions of dollars on virtual goods, but they don't own them. They're, they're renting them at best. So my thesis is simply put that like, if you're going to spend billions of dollars on something, you might as well own it. <laughs> you know, you might as well have, have uh, the ability to to sell it, to participate in the price appreciation if it, if it goes up, um, to 
you know, be able to control it if you want, to take it with you outside of an environment. And I think that the next sort of frontier for gaming is going to be based on that concept. And it's and it's not a, and it's not a, it's not a revolution; it's an evolution because owning in-game assets has been part of gameplay for decades. And so I think that that's a very natural transition. And then on the deep end side, decentralized physical infrastructure. I mean, it goes back to what I said earlier about challenges. You know, if you want to build scale in a decentralized web, then you need decentralized stack and that includes uh, everything from you know rendering to storage to mapping data to uh, maybe even you know internet connectivity and so on and so forth but either way i'm really excited about deepin because i think a um it it addresses that issue and can help fulfill the vision but b it could just do things better <laughs> like in the end this isn't all like an ideological exercise the whole concept is like can these tools and that enable us to do things better you know and better has lots of meanings but one meaning is more accurate more timely um data and information and capability so there's a, a project that i talk about in the book called hive mapper which is basically using um kind of a combination what i would call like a, a synergy of IoT, AI, and blockchain to uh, address this issue. So basically, you buy a, a camera, a dash cam, you put it on your dash, and you know, as you're driving around, doing whatever it is you're doing, you know, you're going to the store, maybe you're an Uber driver or something, it's collecting all of this data, mapping data, image data, and so forth. That wouldn't have been possible without you know, cheap, relatively cheap, high quality cameras and, and other equipment, right? So that's the things part. And it wouldn't have been possible without AI because it needs to you know, be able to identify objects um, and it needs to be able to tell the difference between a stop sign and a, and a turn signal or whatever. Um, and so there's all that part of it. And then there's the, the, the web three or the crypto part of it is, you know, how do you create incentives for people to do this in the first place? Like, why would I do this? What's the point? I mean, maybe I do it for fun. There are lots of people who volunteer their time and, and money even to help help out. But rather than altruism, can we get some, you know, basic incentive for people to do it? So HiveMapper has mapped 5 million kilometers, about 8% of the world's surface so far. And it's only been around for like a year. And so like, to me, that's kind of an interesting story. And and the idea is that, you know, in a lot of places where most people are operating their HiveMapper dash cams, this is places like New York and um, like Seoul, Korea and LA, I think the they said um, they're getting more ac more accurate and more timely data than than any Google car ever could because it doesn't matter how many Google cars you put on the road you can have dozens or hundreds of Hive Mapper cars in a city and you don't need you don't need everybody driving one you need like a few dozen and then all of a sudden you're going to like cover the whole town basically mm -hmm. so I find that just very very interesting as well um, so and I think that the next sort of phase is going to see some really interesting growth in those two areas. And then I think, you know, everyone talks about RWAs, real world assets. Um, you know, I've been talking about security tokens since 2016 um, because that was kind of how I first got into this, right? It was like, wow, I wonder if we could apply this to existing assets. That was the genesis of my whole interest in this, 2015, <laughs> 14. And uh, yeah, there's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come again. So hopefully this time around, it has some success. But we know that RWAs work because we have stable coins and that's a $120 billion market. And that's something where we clearly have the technology ability to do it. We have the product market fit, everybody wants dollars. And from a regulatory perspective, um, you know, it's kind of global. It's it's operating at this sort of level that, that um, makes it so that it's sort of hard to shut down, I guess, you know, for better or for worse. Um, anyway, so the point is that is 
kind of where we're at with stable coins. The question is for everyone else that wants to tokenize a piece of art or tokenize real estate or tokenize, you know, shares in a company or bonds or money market funds or mutual funds or whatever, if you want to do all that stuff, like turning it into a token doesn't make it a better investment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the underlying thing needs to be what people want to own. And if the tokenization process makes it easier for more kinds of people to own it and gives it additional functionality, then great. If it doesn't, and you're just like reselling a token to your existing market that's used to buying, you know, in a traditional way, you're just like duplicating effort. You're achieving nothing. You're not solving any problem, right? And I just look at a lot of these projects. I'm like, all I see is a duplication of effort. And I don't blame the founders because typically it's because, you know, the the, the regulatory and, and the business environment requires some very circumscribed, narrow application of the technology. And if that's where you're that's what you have to do, then you're better off focusing your efforts somewhere else. Yes. I mean, it's it's a fascinating topic, like, and I'm, I'm afraid to even ask you more questions because I do have, like, <laughs> while you were speaking, I collected, like, at least three or four. But I actually want to wanna keep it, like, you know, something like an intrigue for people to buy your book, like, get acquainted with your vision, with your views, and actually go then and meet you in the in the cities where you present the book i i am actually honored that i'm gonna you know the meet you in person today in new york and your book presentation and i i actually urge people to just follow uh your schedule right you know i know you're gonna have like different schedules in different cities not only in north america but also in other uh countries so please do that like and we're gonna share all the links you know like uh where people can find you I mean, where are you more active on Twitter or like LinkedIn? Um, yeah, Twitter's, I think, where people should go at Alex Tapscott. Uh, oh. Check that, please. Yeah. And also uh, web3booktour.com. If you want to join us, we've got a few more tour dates planned between now and the end of November. But uh, most importantly, yeah, check out my book. Um, the best way to buy it is in massive volume. <laughs> yes, bulk, buy bulk, and then distribute to your institution. So, here it is, like I already bought it. So please, I urge you to also do the same. Uh, before we um, before we end this uh, interview, which is very interesting, like, you know, to see it, to pick your brain and, you know, talk to the author, you know, himself. Um, I'm, I'm, I always prepare this one question, which is deeply personal. And I never notify my guests because I think this is the most beautiful part of it. Like, you know, that you're going to be genuine in the answer, right? So you're writing this book, you're you know, doing the business you have, uh, I know you have an amazing family, you have kids, and you're doing it for for a reason, there's a purpose behind it. So I want to know what is your purpose in life, Alex? My purpose in life? Um, yes. Well, what is the meaning of life if you want a better version of the question? <laughs> for you? I, I'll tell you what what works for me. Um, what works for me is that I try to, I try to live a principled life of some consequence. Um, you know, I, I try to um, apply my values to what I do, and I try to make a difference. And, and it, you know, I think that's something everyone can do. Um, and it doesn't need to be, you know, starting some company or becoming president or something like or whatever. Um, there are lots of ways to have an impact. I think probably the way that I've I've had the most positive impact is is actually as an as an educator, as someone who's able to. Uh, decode complex ideas and make them, um, you know, make them understandable or, or, or make them uh, digestible. And I'm doing that because like, what's the reason why I'm doing it with Web3 and not, you know, some other topic? Well, I think that this is a really important technology. And I think it's going to um, potentially change the world, if we will it. 
you know, I, I think I said at the outset, the future is not something to be predicted. It's something to be achieved. And so I think in, in my small part, in my way, I'm, I'm helping to do that. Um, but there are dozens of other, you know, well, many more than dozens, but pioneers, builders, other, other educators, people who are helping to, you know, push, push us forward as a species. And uh, if I'm playing some small role in that, then I'm doing my part. It's a beautiful answer. Well, I'm wishing you to fulfill more and more like of your uh, purpose in life and like to disseminate this revolution, help others to educate themselves and be this conduit of knowledge and positivity, right? Thank you so much for the interview and really excited to see you today. Thanks.